0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Let me invite you this morning to join me in our walk through the Gospel of Mark to chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we are going to give our attention to verses one through 12 passage that I've simply entitled, God Sent His Son and We Killed Him. You might think that as we, this morning, will commission a hundred of our students who will be going across North America and around the world, many of them taking their permanent career assignment, that this is rather an odd passage, a strange passage. Uh, to teach from and yet i think as we walk through it and i've been meditating on it for many many weeks now you'll actually see that it is a very appropriate passage for those of us who have answered the call of our lord to go and to go wherever it is that he chooses to send us mark chapter 12 beginning with verse 1 and he that is jesus began to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son but those tenants said to one another this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours and they took him and killed him and threw him out into the vineyard what will the out of the vineyard what will the owner of the vineyard do uh, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others Have you not read this Scripture? And he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In the Bible, there are a number of biblical truths that we have to keep together so that we don't run the risk of distorting them or getting them out of balance. For example, to really understand the beauty of heaven, you have to place it against the horrors of hell. To really see mercy in all of its wonder, you have to contrast it with the severity of the righteous judgment of God. Grace will always be better loved and more appreciated when we see it in contrast to God's wrath. The importance of keeping biblical truths together is especially, I think, crucial when it comes to considering two of the signal events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, His incarnation, and on the other hand, His crucifixion and resurrection. Christmas must always be celebrated in light of Good Friday and Easter. Bethlehem should never be separated from Jerusalem. The cradle in a stable providing a resting place for a little baby boy must never be separated from a man hanging on a cross at Golgotha. This particular passage, Mark 12. 1 through 12, is a parable. It's kind of an extended parable. Some have even described it as an allegorical parable. It's, It's known popularly as the parable of the wicked tenants. And in it, Jesus tells a story that entails both judgment and mercy, grace and wrath, if you like, Christmas, and also Easter and he tells us a story that is not difficult to understand uh, in any form or fashion. God sent his son, and we killed him. There is a murder in the vineyard, and we all know this morning who is guilty of the crime. Now, the context. Jesus has recently entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry that is recorded in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, shouts uh, and applause. And yet a couple of days later, he will return to the temple, enrage the religious leaders by cleansing the temple, chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And the tension that has been building throughout the Gospel of Mark is growing worse and worse and basically headed for a showdown. He exacerbated this when he had a public showdown with the chief priest and the scribes and the elders there in chapter 11 and verse 27 over the authority of the source of the ministry of John the Baptist and his own. But now he will inflame their opposition and their hatred to an even greater degree with a parable that will expose both their evil hearts and their intended goal to get rid of him. As it says there in chapter 12 and verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told the parable against him. So they left and went away. All the way back in chapter 3 and verse 6. We have been informed in Mark's gospel that their goal ultimately is to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. That is said again in chapter 11. It will be said again in chapter 14. And so what can really be described as an allegorical parable? Jesus tells a story that condemns the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel. Israel. Now, if you want to understand this parable in its fullness, you go back to the Old Testament because Jesus draws from a parable of a landlord and a vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And here it is very easy to identify the various individuals and what they represent. So let me do that, and then we're going to jump right in to our passage. The man who planted the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel, picking up on Isaiah chapter 5. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel, the servants, the faithful prophets, the beloved son, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such a crucial parable. It does occur in all three synoptics in Matthew chapter 21, in Luke chapter 20, and here also in Mark chapter 12. And so, as we walk through this parable, let me highlight for you three truths that emerge naturally when we see the truth, God sent His Son and we killed Him. Number one, God is incredibly patient even when sinners resist His gracious wooing. God is incredibly patient even when sinners resist His gracious wooing. Once more, Jesus speaks to the people, and in particular, as we've just seen at the end of chapter 11, the religious leaders, and He speaks to them in a parable, uh, uh, as we often say, uh, uh, simply a a heavenly story or an earthly story with a a heavenly meaning. By the way, this is a judgment parable, a, a prophetic parable, and it actually allows us to see the Christ event, all of it from the cradle to the cross, from God's perspective. Furthermore, it does resemble, doesn't it, that uh, clever trap that Nathan set for King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verses 115, where eventually as he tells the story, uh, David says, well, the person that acted in this way should die. And David points his finger at him and says, you are are the man. By the end of this parable, the religious leaders of Israel will know they are the man. They are the men. The parable then is clearly a a story of Israel's relationship to the Son of God, and yet I would also agree with those students of Scripture who say this parable really is a story of God's relationship to all of us. In other words, when you read the parable as you ought, you will quickly identify with the wicked tenants who also took God's Son and put him to death. Now, this would have been a familiar story to those in the first century, wealthy, absentee landowners uh, leasing out their farms to tenant farmers. It described the type of thing that happened every day in Israel. And it's at the end when the parable turns that the religious leaders are unexpectedly trapped in their own wickedness and their own evil. As one man well said, they would have readily identified with the landowners until Jesus turned the tables and identified them as the wicked tenants. Now, God is incredibly gracious, and He is incredibly patient. So, what do we learn about God's grace and patience in verse 1 through verse 5? Well, number one, God has given us many gifts. God has given us many gifts. Look at what the Bible says there in verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and what did he do with this vineyard? Well, he put a fence around it to protect it. Uh, He dug a pit for the wine presses to increase the fertility and the fruitfulness. He built a tower likewise to protect it, and then he leased it out to those that he trusted would care well for the vineyard. God planted a nation. It's called Israel. It is a special and elect vineyard, as Isaiah chapter 5 makes very clear. And He cared for her. He provided for her. He put in place leaders to protect her and keep her safe and enable her to prosper and bear fruit for His glory and their good. And yet, as Isaiah chapter 5 in verse 2 informs us, it says, God looked for a crop of good grapes, but instead it yielded, the ESV uses the phrase, wild grapes. The NIV gives a more interpretive understanding and says it yielded bad fruit. In other words, in spite of the fact that God planted her, in spite of the fact that God put in protective fencing and a a tower, she did not produce good things, she produced bad things. He went to great expense on behalf of the vineyard, and he had every right to expect a bountiful harvest, and yet the vineyard failed in its assignment. God gave them many good gifts. But secondly, God also sent to them many faithful prophets, many faithful messengers. Look at what it says there in verse 2. Now, when the season came, he sent a servant, a doulos, to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The landowner, God, has made an agreement with the tenant farmers, the leaders of, of Israel. He believed that they can be trusted, that they would be reliable and good caretakers of his vineyard. They would work the vineyard. They themselves would benefit from the produce, and then they would rightly pay a percentage as rent to the landowner. Now, in order for a landowner, we know this from historical studies, in order for a landowner to retain legal right to his property, he had to receive some of the produce on a regular basis from the tenants. But as C.H. Dodd well said, the tenants pay their rent in blows. So, verses 2 and 3, the harvest has arrived. Uh, The landowner sends a servant who is there uh, to receive from them the appropriate produce and the appropriate rent. And what do they do? They beat him and send him away empty-handed. Verse 4, he sends another, a second servant. They treat him even worse. They strike him on the head, and the Bible says they treated him shamefully. The idea is they insulted him. Uh, They dishonored him, and by dishonoring the servants they dishonored the one who sent the servants. Eugene Peterson, in his colorful paraphrase, the message says, that one they tarred and they feathered him. But verse 5 again shows us the graciousness, the patience, the long-suffering of our Lord with sinners. He sends a a third servant, and the response of the tenants escalates. They kill him, and then the text says on and on they would go with many others some they would beat, and some they killed when i read these words my mind immediately goes to hebrews and chapter 11. of course we're reminded in hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 that god in times past spoke it many times and in many ways through the prophets of old But then when you get to chapter 11 verses 35 and following you encounter what some have called god's hall of faith men and women that god sent and men and women who suffered terribly as a result of their service to god most often don't miss this most often they suffered at the hands of their own people in fact what does the bible say in hebrews chapter 11 verses 35 and following some were tortured refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We know from Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 2 that Jeremiah was beaten and put in prison. Uh, Jewish tradition says that Isaiah the prophet was sawn in two. We know that a prophet named Zechariah was stoned to death in the court of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 21. And Nehemiah says in chapter 9 and verse 26, the people were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And of course, in recent days, the cousin of our Lord John the Baptist had been beheaded. Jesus will address all of this very directly in Matthew chapter 23 and what is called his sermon of woes. And against the scribes and the Pharisees, in particular, you know, I have to pause here for a moment. When you read the Gospels, it's very disturbing if you are involved in religious education and theological education, and you're in religious leadership. You say, why? Because Jesus is always railing on them. He doesn't rail on sinners. He doesn't get after, in an angry kind of a way, common people, but those who ought to know better. He holds to a much greater and higher authority and a much greater and higher level of accountability. That's why James tells us in chapter three and verse one of the book that bears his name, not many of you should be teachers, for you will endure a greater judgment. That's a good word for people in social media today, especially those that God has given positions of leadership and responsibility. No, Jesus will condemn them. And in Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35, we'll say this, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. God's gracious patience, his long-sufferingness was repeatedly extended to the rebellious sinners of Israel, rebellious sinners like you and like me. And yet we took his good things, we take his good things, and we turn them into God things, and thereby they become bad things. We took what was his and we rebelled and said it was ours. And God, in His incredible patience, is kind and long-suffering with sinners who re- resist His gracious wooing. But number two, when the Father sent His Son, He sent the one He loves and that we should honor. When God sent His Son, He sent the one He loves and we should honor. The parable takes a remarkable turn in verse 6. Oh, it continues the theme of patience and long-suffering of God with humanity. It testifies to the amazing grace of God, but now it testifies to the amazing grace of God in sending His only Son to make things right with rebellious sinners like you and like me. Now, again, I understand the primary meaning of the text— He is talking at this moment to the religious leaders of Israel, and yet I must confess, I see myself, I see all of us in this parable. Kent Hughes is right. Every person is in this parable. Note again the grace and mercy of the Father as He sends His Son as an act of grace. Verse 6, He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. The landowner now becomes a father. And in one final attempt, literally the Greek text says, last of all, it's unique uh, to Mark's telling of this story, last of all, To receive from the tenants what is rightly his, he sends on a mission what is described in the text as his beloved son. Surely they will respect him, his beloved son. We know that that particular phrase is filled with biblical and theological significance. It was idiomatic uh, for an only son, a unique son, a -a one-of-a-kind son. A.T. Robertson, the great Baptist Greek scholar, said Jesus evidently had in mind the language of the Father to him at his baptism. And we will hear that same term of endearment in Mark chapter 9 and verse 7 at the transfiguration. Again, it's worth your time to trace out throughout the totality of the Bible the theology of the beloved son, the, the theology of the unique son. It takes you, for example, all the way back to Genesis in chapter 22 and verse 2 where Abraham is told by God to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah. And what does God say in chapter 22 and verse 2? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love it draws our attention again to that most wonderful verse John 3:16For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten his unique his one of a kind son it draws from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and 7 for to us a child is born to us a son is given. And the son's mission, as we see, is in many ways the same as the servants. He is there on behalf of the father to engage rebellious people to get them right with the father. And yet, James Edwards, in his wonderful commentary, notes there are a number of differences between the servant and the son. The servants are many, but the son is one. The servants are men for hire. The son is the heir. The servants are the forerunners. The son is the last one. And if verses 1 through 5 convey the hope of God for his people, verse 6 conveys the loving kindness, the hesed of God for his people, the father sent his son as an act of grace. But then secondly, Sinners murdered his son in an act of insanity. But those tenants said to one another, verse 7, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Some Bible teachers surmise or speculate that uh, because he sent the son, they had drawn the conclusion that the father was now dead and therefore if they also got rid of the air the sun then everything that they have would be long now to them it's interesting when they take when you see the phrase there that uh, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. come let us kill him that is the exact same phrase that you find in genesis chapter 37 and verse 20 when it comes to how the brothers of joseph wanted to treat him come let us kill him I like David Garland's commentary on these particular verses when he draws it uh, in particular to an application of the sin of covetousness, uh, wanting what does not rightly belong to us, but rightly is the property of another. And he says this, listen very carefully. Covetousness makes humans want what they should not have. It makes them think that this desire should be fulfilled at all cost. Listen. Other persons become things to exploit, and our desires become our gods. Do humans think that by erasing God from their lives, they can take control of their earthly and eternal destiny? Apparently so. Here is the utter foolishness of sinful rebellion against God. Three days later, after telling this parable, we would indeed see all of this unfold in history as the religious leaders of Israel did to God's son exactly what they said they would do here in verse 8. They took him, and they killed him. And perhaps a reference to his death taking place outside the walls of Jerusalem, they threw him out of the vineyard. In other words, they would murder him and not even give him a decent burial, a horrible offense in that day, in fact, a horrible offense in any day. And so God in sending His Son does remind us of Christmas, the incarnation, the gifts of God, His amazing love, and yet the killing of the Son reminds us of Good Friday and Easter, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and it draws us again to what Jesus uh, is said to have been in, first, in John chapter 1 and verse 11 when John writes of His coming, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. One of my favorite preachers, I hope one of your favorite preachers, is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of London for many decades, probably the greatest Baptist preacher ever, a man of remarkable skill and insight and wisdom, and just had a gift for turning a phrase. I don't know anyone that can quite say something the way Spurgeon does. And so in preparing this message, I, I went to Spurgeon's commentaries, his sermons, and Saw what he said about this particular passage, and he said a number of very helpful things that I quickly share with you this morning. Spurgeon said, and I quote If you reject Jesus, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. And if you bury him, he rises again to bring us resurrection. Jesus is love manifested. But then he adds, Let us see for a minute who this messenger is. He is one greatly beloved of his Father, and in himself, he is of surpassing excellence. The Lord Jesus Christ is so inconceivably glorious that I tremble at any attempt to describe his glory. Assuredly, he is very God of very God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And yet he took upon himself a human form. He was born an infant into our weakness, and he lived as a carpenter to share our toil. He took upon himself the form of a servant, and yet in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. And yet he took a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Because of his Godhead, you must not dare harden your hearts. He is God's well-beloved. And if you are wise, he will be yours too. Do not turn your back on him whom all the angels worship. Beware lest you reject one whom God loves so well. He will take it as an insult to himself." He that despises the anointed of God has blasphemed God himself. You put your finger into the very eye of God when you slight his son. And when God sent his son, he sent the one he loves and the one that we should honor. But number three, even though people believe they can escape it, God's judgment will certainly come. Even though people think they can escape it, God's judgment will certainly come. Romans chapter 11 and verse 22 reads, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. To slight and reject the Son is to invite what the Bible calls the wrath of the Lamb into your life. Again, Spurgeon says it so much better than I can. I quote, remember once more that if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. That, by the way, is why we go. That's why we commission. That's why you're here. There is no other salvation other than through Jesus. There is not a Hindu way or a Buddhist way or a Jewish way or a Muslim way or an animist way. There's only one way, and His name is Jesus. And I know with increasing hostility... That message is going to be rejected. And yet, you and I are going to have to put on our spiritual overalls and man up and girl up and accept the, the slights and the criticism and the condemnation. And yes, maybe for some of you, even the persecution and the death. And yet, brothers and sisters, if heaven and hell are real and this is true, we must not be silent. If Christ is rejected, hope is rejected. I should like then every person here that is unconverted to remember that there is no other gospel and there is no more sacrifice for sin. I have heard talk, this is even in Spurgeon's day, I have heard talk of a larger hope than the gospel sets before us. It is a fable. It is a fable with nothing in Scripture to warrant it. Rejecting Christ, you've rejected all. You have shut against yourself the one door of hope. Christ, who knows better than all pretenders, declares that he that believes not shall be damned. There remains nothing but damnation for those who believe not in Jesus. And yet the one who was rejected and murdered will be Be vindicated, and how we respond to this event could not be more important, for it is of eternal consequence and significance. Verse 9 Our response to the Son will decisively determine our eternal destiny. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, he will destroy the tenants, and he will give the vineyard, he will give the good gifts of God to others. Have you not read this scripture? And here he changes the metaphor from a vineyard to a stone, quoting Psalm 118. By the way, in that psalm, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, they are singing Hosanna to the one who saves. They're praising him and blessing him, and yet a few days later, they will reject him, and yet their rejection is not the rest of the story. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, the the chief stone, the, the capstone, the most important stone. And furthermore, this was the Lord's doing. Is this not marvelous in all of our eyes? And so God brings about what I love to call the great reversal, taking death and giving life taking the rejection of his son and turning it to the salvation of the nations, something that he offers to all through you and through me as we go. Brothers and sisters, there's no doubt that the religious leaders clearly understood what was going on here, for it says there in verse 12, and they then were seeking. The idea is they were conniving to arrest him, but they did not do so for fear of, of the people, for they did perceive, they clearly understood that he had told the parable against him. And so they left him and went away, but only for a very, very, very brief time." John Calvin is right. Whatever may be the contrivances of men, God has at the same time declared that in setting up the kingdom of Christ, His power will be victorious. In the last battle by C.S. Lewis, Queen Lucy says to Lord DeGory, in our world, too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. We might add this morning, in our world, there was also a cross, And hanging on it with someone greater and more wonderful than the whole world. It was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous, I pray, in our eyes. This is why God sent His Son. This is why God sends His servants like you and like me. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that in your amazing grace and goodness, you sent your servants, the prophets, to warn the nation of Israel concerning their evil, their wickedness, their sin, and their rebellion against you. And Lord... You did not stop when they rejected them, but you sent your beloved son, your unique son, your one-of-a-kind son. And Lord, in an act of insanity, they killed him. And yet, Lord, it was always according to your perfectly divine orchestrated plan. Because three days after his bloody execution, you gloriously raised him from the dead, the great grand reversal. And Lord, now today on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the empty tomb, you now send us. And Lord, we need to recognize that as you send us, we too may experience what your prophets went through. Some of us will be badly treated. Some of us may be shamed. Some of us may be imprisoned. Some of us may even be put to death like those who went before us, but, Lord, it is all according to your perfect plan and design and for the good of the nations. And, Lord, it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing, Lord, to actually commit our lives to it. And so, Father, in just a few moments as we sing praises to your name and then commission those that will be going, Help us, Lord, to understand we stand in a wonderful line of servants who've gone before us, who are there as a wonderful witness to your grace, to your goodness, and to your faithfulness, no matter what we may endure. I thank you, Lord, that Southeastern Seminary is a great commission seminary. Lord, I pray with all of my heart, it will not just be in name it will be in reality we love you and we know you love us because you sent your beloved son and it is in his name that we pray amen thank you for listening to this podcast consider giving to southeastern seminary online or visiting us for a preview day for information on how to give or sign up for a preview day visit scbts.edu.